Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Russell Kirk said of Richard M. Weaver, with a high logical power, Weaver undertook an intellectual defense of culture and of order and justice and freedom. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. Why are culture, order, justice, and freedom worth defending? Today we conclude our Exploring Weaver series. It has been an amazing journey. I must wholeheartedly agree with Russell Kirk's assessment of Richard M. Weaver. Weaver defends culture, order, justice, and freedom all the while making the case for dialectic and rhetoric as integral to the survival of Western culture. Joining us again as our guide as we bring this journey to a close is Dr. Jim Tallman, rhetoric teacher at Wittenberg Academy and author of, of Rhetoric and Redemption in La Rioja. Today we are putting a bow on our time with Richard M. Weaver. There's probably a lifetime of things we could discuss related to Richard M. Weaver's writing, but there are a few themes that emerge when reading Weaver. Russell Kirk highlighted a few of the things Weaver defended in his writing, culture, order, justice, and freedom. Dr. Tallman, our journey with Richard M. Weaver has been nothing short of fantastic. He speaks to our time just as he spoke to his own time. For our purposes today, perhaps the biggest question on the table is, where do we go from here? Richard M. Weaver has challenged us to think deeply and differently about culture, order, justice, freedom, distinction, hierarchy, education, dialectic, and rhetoric. Where do we go with all of this? How should this impact us? Well, we've talked about culture. We've talked about order. We've talked about justice and freedom and pedagogy and the role of education in a free society. And all of these are threads that come together in the writings of Richard Weaver. I just wanted to, you know, underscore that our discussion of culture and the cultural role of rhetoric really contributes a lot to how people understand the precariousness of our situation as our culture kind of unravels in some ways. And that underscores the need for order. We pray for a peaceable, orderly existence, and without justice, that can't happen. And the perceptions that people have about justice, our viewpoint on justice is quite different from that of a social justice warrior. And so that conversation really is momentous. And, um, and of course, do we want to perpetuate a free society? Or would we rather have a fascistic kind of order that comes at the expense of individual liberty? So. Those are all enduring questions. They're vital questions, and Weaver has spoken to them a whole lot. And so education in these ideas is really important in equipping our students to be of use in a world like the one we inhabit at present. 
it's kind of interesting as, as you've been kind of giving us a, a boost into our conversation here, many of the things that you said remind me of colics that we pray throughout the church year. And it's interesting in thinking about that, talked about the orderly and, and peaceable, and those are words that we hear in the colics of the week throughout the church year. And I wonder if sometimes we don't stop to understand what exactly we're praying for and how when Richard M. Weaver is speaking of these things, he's helping us to understand what we need. And then, of course, <laughs> with all of our needs, we go to our Heavenly Father. And so it's yeah. it's kind of a beautiful way of thinking about these things. And hopefully, when we hear some of these things come up in the colics of the week, that we would pray ever more fervently, knowing to a greater degree for what we are praying. And so our education in dialectic and rhetoric and in Weaver on the relationship of dialectic to rhetoric and what it means to be fully human becomes ever more clear when we have these kinds of conversations, Jocelyn. And that helps to make more clear why it is that our liturgy and our catechesis and the scripture have these rhetorical dimensions to them and the seasons of life and the rhythms of life are enhanced by and are integral to the rhythms established in the language right and Absolutely. it's all there's a spiritual dimension in language and language is an ordering principle it helps us make sense of the world and naming names as Adam did, right? Yes. Um, I was just thinking of some ideas as I prepped early this morning that I could pull from various works that would help underscore the different threads that we've engaged in this series and one of the first things that I thought of is a collection of Richard Weaver essays entitled Language is Sermonic. The very first of those essays is The Power of the Word. I want to read this opening passage. At the beginning, I should urge examining in all seriousness that ancient belief that a divine element is present in language. The feeling that to have power of language is to have control over things is deeply embedded in the human mind. We see this in the way men gifted in speech are feared or admired. We see it in the potency ascribed to incantations, interdictions, and curses. We see it in the legal force given to oath or word. A man can bind himself in the face of contingencies by saying yea or nay, which can only mean that words in common human practice express something transcending the moment. Speech is, moreover, the vehicle of order, and those who command it are regarded as having superior insight, which must be into the, nece the necessary relationship of things. Such is the philosophic meaning of great myths, 
And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he could call them. And whatever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. This story symbolizes the fact that man's overlordship begins with the naming of the world. Having named the animals, he has in a sense ordered them. And what other than a classified catalog of names is a large part of natural science? To discover what a thing is called according to some system is the essential step in knowing. And to say that all education is learning to name rightly as Adam named the animals, would assert an underlying truth. The sentence passed upon Babel confounded the learning of its builders. As myth gives way to philosophy in the normal sequence we have noted, the tendency to see a principle of divinity in language endures. Thus we learn that in the late ancient world, the Hebrew Memra and the Greek Logos merged, and in the Gospel of John we find an explicit identification. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. A following verse declares that Logos as God lies behind the design of the cosmos, for, quote, without him was not anything made that was made. Speech begins to appear the principle of intelligibility. Okay. So I really recommend that our listeners pick up Languages Sermonic and read that first essay, The Power of the Word. And also there's some really nice thought that follows from what we've been discussing um, here in the title essay, Language is Sermonic, which is the last one. I want to refer the um, listeners also to the uh, Louisiana State University Press version of Language is Sermonic, page 206. There's one other piece that is already linked to episode 9 on the Wittenberg Hour, called weaverdoctorculture.pdf. I could have really easily just read that entire lecture. It was a lecture I gave at Patrick Henry College a few years ago. That would have easily been a standalone debrief of our entire conversation. We'll go ahead and link that again for episode 10. That would be great. There's so much from that quote that you just read that we could explore further. It's interesting to think about language and the fact that God not only gave us language, but you put an emphasis on the idea of of being called, being named, and the fact that God calls us his children. He names us as his own in baptism. And he he puts a hedge around his name in the second commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And it's interesting to think about, okay, so God protects his name. He gives us our name 
But then thinking about the different things that he gives us to protect language. And I would almost go so far as to, and maybe this is a bridge too far, but to say that the the teaching of dialectic and rhetoric is one of the hedges that God has given us to protect language. Yeah, that's really beautifully said. I was going in a little bit different trajectory in my mind, but they come together very nicely because I was thinking that the process of learning to follow in the train of uh, weavers, the power of the word, learning begins with learning the names of things. And when you learn the names of things, the next logical question to ask is, well, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. Fortunate for we Lutherans, that construction is central to our being. But then answering that question can take on a variety of forms. There's a rationalistic approach to those sorts of questions that we don't really espouse. And then there's a sacramental approach to them that embraces mystery and both ands. And that is not necessarily congruent with that rationalistic bias that's very integral to the 18th and 19th century, right? So it's fortunate for us that our epistemology and our phenomenology and our theology go back to the 16th century. So we have a tradition, a heritage, a way of knowing that is grounded in that worldview and fundamental to that approach to pedagogy is that relationship between dialectic and rhetoric. When Sturm coined our motto that the aim of education is a wise and eloquent piety, he was thinking in terms of dialectical studies, rhetorical studies, and theological studies being the foundation that provides the hedge against error, falsehood, demagoguery, sophistry, and all of the character flaws that follow from embracing those kinds of isms. I think that ties together what I was thinking and what you were thinking all in a nice little package. Certainly. I was up in in St. Paul the last couple of days, and so I I drove down university, and I saw the piles of of rubble from Mm -hmm. the riots. And you look at that, and you look at the the tags, I guess they call them, Mm -hmm. scrawled on buildings. The street art. Right. I have in front of me The Great Conversation, which is volume one of the great books of the Western world. And it's an essay that is just fantastic. And one of the chapters of that essay is entitled Education for All. And Mortimer Adler writes, But I do not wish to beg the question. The question, in effect, is this. Is there any such thing as an education? The answer that is made by the devotees of the dogma of individual differences is no. 
there are as many different educations as there are different individuals. It is authoritarian to say that there is any education that is necessary or even suitable for every individual. So Bertrand Russell once said to me that the pupil in school should study whatever he liked. I asked whether this was not a crime against the pupil. Suppose a boy did not like Shakespeare. Should he be allowed to grow up without knowing Shakespeare? And if he did, would he not look back upon his teachers as cheats who had defrauded him of his cultural heritage? Lord Russell replied that he would require a boy to read one play of Shakespeare. If he did not like it, he should not be compelled to read any more. I say that Shakespeare should be a part of the education of everybody. The point at which he is introduced into the course of study, the method of arousing interest in him, the manner in which he is related to the problems of the present may vary as you will. But Shakespeare should be there because of the loss of understanding, because of the impoverishment that results from his absence. The comprehension of the tradition in which we live and our ability to communicate with others who live in the same tradition and to interpret our tradition to those who do not live in it are drastically affected by the omission of Shakespeare from the intellectual and artistic experience of any of us. Now, here's the part that prompted me to read this. If any common program is impossible, if there is no such thing as an education that everybody ought to have, then we must admit that any community is impossible. All men are different, but they are also the same. As we must all become specialists, so we must all become men. In view of the ample provision that is now made for the training of specialists, in view of the divisive and disintegrative effects of specialism, and in view of the urgent need for unity and community, it does not seem an exaggeration to say that the present crisis calls, first of all, for an education that shall emphasize those respects in which men are the same, rather than those in which they are different. The West needs an education that draws out our common humanity rather than our individuality. Individual differences can be taken into account in the methods that are employed and in the opportunities for specialization that may come later. In this connection, we might recall the dictum of Rousseau. Quote, it matters little to me whether my pupil is intended for the army, the church, or the law. Before his parents choose a calling for him, nature called him to be a man. When he leaves me, he will be neither a magistrate, a soldier, nor a priest. He will be a man. Unquote. That's great. The unity part and community really spoke to me as you were driving down the road there looking at all of the tags and the destruction and the mayhem and contemplating visions of order, the cultural crisis of our time. Correct. And we had mentioned this last episode briefly, but thinking about the fact that this is fundamentally and the quote you just read 
highlights this, that unity and cohesion is fundamental to being human. You know, God said to Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. God created us to be in community. And part of community is language, right? You know, God confused the language of the the people at the Tower of, of Babel, but in in his word, he gives us a common language. And kind of going yes. back, circling back around, this is part of the reason why we teach what we teach and the way that we teach it, because we want scholars to fundamentally have the the power and the the utility and the beauty of language the so that they can yeah exactly so that they can barbaroy a barbaroy is one who does not speak the language yes we learned that from weaver too so we've we've kind of hit on this already but it bears diving in a little bit further Insofar as Weaver's writing is so relevant to our time, and I've said this over and over every single episode, this could have been written right now. You know, it's almost like every episode that we recorded, then following that, some world event or national event happened that gave credence to and solidified the fact that we still need to be reading Weaver. And he can still give us thoughts to ponder that we need right now. But along with that, when you read Weaver, you can't have your head buried in a hole anymore. His writing doesn't allow us to have and to live a naive understanding of the world around us. No. And you've said beautifully in multiple episodes, we need to remember that this world is not our home. So how does Weaver help us consider rightly our, our place here in this veil of tears, even as we pray, come Lord Jesus quickly? In other words, how does he encourage us? We feel the, the weight, you know, when we see the world for what it is, when we read Weaver and we go, yes, yep, I see that. But how does he also encourage us for life this side of heaven? The same way Martin Luther did when he wrote The Freedom of the Christian. We find our Christian identity in service to neighbor. We conclude, therefore, that a Christian lives not in himself, but in Christ and in his neighbor. Otherwise, he is not a Christian. He lives in Christ through faith, in his neighbor through love. By faith, he is caught up beyond himself into God. By love, he descends beneath himself into his neighbor. Yet he always remains in God and in his love, as Christ says in John. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So he has this beautiful passage that explains good works in terms of the love of God. And Weaver talks about rhetoric as the intellectual love of God. So losing yourself in your neighbor 
for Christ's sake, being a little Christ to your neighbor, has to include language for all the reasons we just spelled out, right? If you love your neighbor, you want your neighbor to see the world rightly and lead a profitable and good life. How do you do that? You persuade your neighbor regarding the virtues of the true, the good, and the beautiful. The way you do that is not simply through logic alone. That won't move the soul of your neighbor to embrace the true, the good, and the beautiful. It might convince them logically, but it won't move them to act on the truths that you have discussed. And so a large part, and this was my argument in my recent Society for Classical Learning uh, presentation, that until schools of rhetoric actually understand the teaching of rhetoric coupled with dialectic to cultivate mental faculties of wisdom and eloquence to equip one to speak the truth and love to his neighbor for their mutual benefit, then they're not really fulfilling the ultimate aim of liberal arts education, and they're not really captivating or capturing the robust potentiality of rhetorical arts. I think you've given us all the more urgency for for what we what we do and I would encourage our listeners if you have a high school student to take advantage of Dr. Tallman's rhetoric classes from Wittenberg Academy. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And if you speak to any of our scholars who have gone all the way through Rhetoric 1, 2, and 3, which is the ideal, they, they come away from that changed. You can't help but be changed and formed when you are sitting at the feet of those you present to the scholars and yeah. uh, sitting at, at your feet. Uh, I, I don't want to discount that part of things. I want to discount the contributions that I make because I'm just an instrument in God's hands. And he's been very good to me along the way, giving me the grace to learn from great people and learn from Richard Weber in particular, Aristotle, Cicero, Quintilian. So, you know, I don't have big claims, but I do bring to students' minds what these people teach and how they teach it. And I do understand, I will take credit for this, I do understand that pedagogically you have to go beyond mere imparting of information as though you're stuffing kids full of the knowledge from these people we've been discussing and reading from. And uh, for the purposes of test taking, right, or paper mm-hmm. writing, and yep. that they have to assimilate that learning by cultivating mental habits of wisdom and eloquence. And that takes time, and it's analogous to becoming excellent at playing an instrument. You don't just do that in a 
discrete semester of learning or whatever. That we understand and the rhetoric track, the block of instruction at Wittenberg Academy is distilled from 35 years of teaching this where I learned at Black Hill State College from my mentor, Charles Follett, who was my debate coach, and he was a Missouri Synod Lutheran, and he was writing his dissertation on Richard Weaver, and I was in my bachelor's program and debated for him and started learning not just head knowledge about Aristotle, but how to appropriate Aristotelian thought to think quickly on my feet and to reason clearly and to spot contradictions and to reason toward the level of presupposition and first principle. And I studied, as a matter of fact, also at Black Hill State College, I studied political science from a professor that just loved to read the old thinkers, you know, and discuss them. So we had seminar after seminar at the bachelor's level, I might add. We just buy these cheap penguin classics and go at it. <laughs> it was so wonderful. And then when I went on to my master's at Colorado State University, I started right away as a teaching assistant, teaching in what my supervisor said was the most purely liberal arts fashion he had ever seen. And what made it so purely liberal arts was what I had learned from my mentor about what Richard Weaver had to say about teaching dialectic and rhetoric together in tandem. And then they had a really good system of teaching basic speech communication at Colorado State where they would tie together a lot of the rhetorical arts in a a really practical way to stair-step students through the process of not only speech composition, but identifying key issues and contrasting presuppositions. You were supposed to be able to analyze things below the level of assumption and so forth, and then persuade. And it was set up so that there were separate discrete assignments that stair-stepped them through the process of coming to the persuasive speech, right? And so I inherited that and worked with it. And then when I got my PhD at the University of Washington, I studied the ethical dimension of rhetoric as deeply as I could and read Richard Weaver all the way through all 12 years of that. I'm going to go on because the last excerpt I wanted to read in this podcast is from Of Rhetoric and Redemption, La Rioja. And I think it would fit in here pretty well. Good brother Paul, where did we leave off? It pleased Paul to no end that Quintilian called him brother. Paul, that which is rightly called rhetoric must be crafted from truths expressed beautifully and must aim at the good. Its complete opposite, namely that which is false, ugly, and aims at evil, is rightly called bombast or sophistry or propaganda. But this sort of obviously ugly, evil communication one rarely encounters because it is self-defeating. If one's object is to lead others astray or to influence attitudes for some unethical end, one obviously has to dress it up a bit and at least give the appearance of truth, beauty, and goodness. Otherwise, who would find that sort of discourse persuasive? Quintilian, yes. Beautiful lies are no more beautiful than is an old prostitute hiding her hideousness behind too much makeup. 
Paul. I would say well put, but it's too repulsive an image for a man of refined sensibilities to grant affirmation. We all laughed long and loud. The steward brought Rioja wine, well chilled, with much water and sliced fruit mixed in. It was delicious and, according to Celsus, healthful. Celsus was, uh, Paul the physician was reading this encyclopedia that was contemporaneous at that time, that was the talk of the town, so to speak. And he spent the time while um, Paul and Quintilian were engaged in talky talk. Uh, Paul used um, his studies and what Celsus had to write about medicine as his his diversion to get him out of the line of fire, so to speak. So I raised my tankard and toasted, to our health. We had another good laugh. Paul admitted he was still unconvinced that rhetoric was ethical all the way down, as Quintilian put it. Quintilian, let us take a few common sense instances, Paul. What does one call a physician whose malfeasance, let us call it malpractice, leads to harm, injury, and death as often as to health and well-being? Not evil doctor or malpractitioner or ignorant doctor. A quack, Luke says. Quintilian, <laughs> yes, and if he's given to botching surgeries, we might even call him a butcher, but this is an insult to the legitimate vocation of butcher. Okay, so here they are having a conversation about how to view rhetoric. Those are my words through and through. And those words have been cultivated over years of trying to teach little sophists how to understand that there isn't such a thing as good rhetoric and bad rhetoric any more than there's such a thing as good abuse good physical abuse and bad physical abuse. Once you cross the line from discipline to abuse, your actions, though they may be characterized similarly, but your actions and your motivation and the outcomes have transformed the kind of activity going on so that we call it by a different name. So there's an example of naming things and then understanding those names in the proper context. And that's the process of education. And that takes a while to have that kind of dialogue and to have students read these passages and then flesh them out for them. And so, and it's, it's not really, uh, I say all the time too with my students, Jocelyn, don't read this as though you're going to have a quiz on it or write a paper where you explain the concept. I want you to internalize these truths and I want them to affect the way you look at things. And then when you give a speech, you are going to have opportunities to practice what you've learned. But the, the influence of what you're learning is going to be a lot more subtle. And the assessment has to do the way I assess how well you're grasping what we're learning is how deep, robust, meaningful, insightful, and imaginative is your talk. Just to bring it back full circle to what we've been talking about. That kind of smacks in the face of modern thoughts in terms of teaching and learning. And 
how that is pursued. I think we the, should be a little more self-critical than that even. I think a good deal of classical education emphasizes mastery of content way more than it should. And that's right. That's important. And, you know, that's a radical statement, but it's important more in the grammar stage. Correct. It's essential to have that grammar of whatever, the grammar of language, the grammar of science, the grammar of math, to have yes. that foundational knowledge, because without that, you have nothing to contemplate later on, and you have nothing it is a framework to... for that level of thought, yes. Right, right. So they work hand in hand, but if you never get past that checklist sort of drilling and reciting and all of that, then you can't fully, it's like an artist. And I, <laughs> maybe I'm getting a, a, a little bit chippy here, <laughs> but I would equate giving a child a beautiful education up through eighth grade and then just choosing whatever, come what may, you've given them a classical education and then when you get to high school, you go, well, they're good enough. We've, we've, we've started, you know, whatever is fine. I would equate that to an artist leaving a work half finished. There are a lot of metaphors you could use for that. And not to mention the indoctrination that they're going to experience. Right. Because that's, right. that's so predominant these days. There's, it's not an accident that there's all these kids hitting the streets now, these public school educated Marxists. And they're searching for the beautiful and the good and the true, but they can't find it because they're they looking in the wrong places. The big need, I would say, is for someone to show them the value of personal restraint in a free society. We read that quote already. The less of restraint the masses have within, the more it must come from without with a police force. That was Edmund Burt. I did want to mention one of the things we have to be careful of is, as you were saying earlier, being sensitive to working them methodically through the stages of learning that are appropriate with their cognitive development. Because if you don't, there's a real downside to extending the grammar stage beyond what it ought to be. So thinking about formation and learning as formation, Richard M. Weaver is very well read. And so he brings in for us, we've seen this in the essays we've covered in the last episodes, he brings in as do all the great thinkers, you know, when you read the Lutheran confessions, they bring in the ancients and they bring in the church fathers. And it's just part of their living and breathing because they're well-read. Yes. So, so why is Richard M. Weaver so fundamental to rhetoric instruction and, and scholar formation at Wittenberg Academy? Okay. That completely reframes the question when you add at Wittenberg Academy because Richard M. Weaver has been roundly rejected in postmodern education. 
because he's a traditionalist, he's a foundationalist, he's a Christian, and so he's all those unsavory things that people in the intelligentsia are trying desperately to equate with oppression. So that internal restraint that I mentioned a little bit ago has itself been equated with oppression by tradition, traditional religion, traditional viewpoints, logocentrism. Oh, we could unpack that a while, couldn't we? Yes. And so because of Weaver's orientation and his association with the conservative intellectual movement in America, he's in complete disfavor. And I have always been looked at askance for being so into Weaver. When I was in graduate school, my fellows used to kind of tease me about it because we got along. We we loved each other and we had a good time kicking ideas around. And it was a different time. It was the 1980s, right? I could get away mm-hmm. with this back then. Right. Today, forget about it. And so I forewarn my students, you know, virtually everything I teach you is going to be looked down upon and excoriated when you get to college. And you are too, you know, everything you've been taught in your catechism and at home is going to be challenged, questioned, trampled underfoot. So Weaver would be one of the first books to be burned in that scenario. But having said that, I think that just demonstrates how successful the devil has been in his designs against the truth. And what's so truthful in Weaver is the Imago Dei is given preeminence in his cultural criticism. He strives at all times to shine the light of truth on schools of thought that he views as detrimental to an elevated image of man. So anything that would tend toward applying machine metaphors to mankind or animal understandings, a rationalistic view of man as though he has no soul, no heart, no passion, no pathos. Um, He makes a good case for the head and the heart. And I personally find that instructive for conservative Christians as well as postmodern secularists, because conservative Christians have a tendency to react against the tide of insanity in philosophical thought, and if you can even call it that, but the the way people have just cast off their moorings in terms of meaning-making and even reality, even perceptions of reality, conservative Christians a lot of times will react against that by becoming rationalistic. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So Weaver speaks to that as well. And that's a good, I find that with our students, some of them in their early days, because they were in the dialectical stage, thought logic was everything. And Pastor Broughton does a tremendous job teaching them logic. And, you know, really everybody touches on it. Their mathematics instruction, they get all excited about mathematical reasoning and logical thought and everything. And then I come along and teach them about informal logic and rhetoric and dialectic. And it's very disorienting to some kids who really 
could thrive in thinking about the world from a mathematical point of view, to be confronted with the realm of opinion and disagreements and arguments about what is the right thing to do where honest intellectuals disagree because opinions are divided. I'm just talking weaver when I talk like that. So that's another instance in which Weaverian thought is really useful with equipping our scholars to be useful in the marketplace of ideas, which is to say, to learn to speak the truth and love to their neighbor. Weaver on the intellectual love of God helps in that regard directly. In a basic sense, in Rhetoric 1, I'm trying to accomplish a broad smorgasbord kind of introduction to rhetorical arts and rhetorical studies. And so my contribution to their understanding of rhetorical theory is walking through some of these Weaver essays we've been discussing, learning about the ethics of rhetoric and the cultural role of rhetoric. There's another few essays we read by Stephen Toolman and Lloyd Bitzer out of the University of Wisconsin. So we read the rhetorical situation and Aristotle's enthymeme revisited. And so they get exposed to a high school level of rhetorical theory that equips them to think that way and understand on a deeper level what all is at stake and how you understand the terms that we define early on. And then it pushes their thought deeper and gives them food for thought, cogitation. But also they learn the great speeches, then they try to emulate the great orators, and then they learn about different styles of speaking and genres and all of that sort of thing. So I use Weaver in argumentation debate. He was the director of composition, freshman composition, at the University of Chicago, and he and his colleagues wrote a rhetoric handbook. And chapter five of the rhetoric handbook is a very good, concise, and deep and exhaustive treatment of logic and rhetoric and argumentation. So I just basically lift that and teach it rhetoric too. That's a pretty long-winded answer, right? Yeah, that's fantastic because it proves the point that Weaver made in his essay, Education in the Individual, that the purpose of education is to make humans more human. And so without yeah. all of that that you, you just laid out for us, you've not accomplished that humanizing element of the formation of, of the scholar. Yes. And I don't, know if that, I don't know if that was the best way of summing that up, but the human aspect of formation. I like to use the formation, sculpting, but we have to realize that we're not dealing with inanimate objects here, that we're, that we're molding into some image that we want them to be. They're made in the image of God. They already have an image. And so that aspect of making humans more human is taking what God has made and helping them to be everything that God has made them to be. Yes, well said. You had mentioned that Weaver was called a defender of lost causes. And that really resonated with me because... Yeah, that came from Russell Kirk. Okay, okay, yes. 
this idea of Weaver as a defender of lost causes really resonated with me because sometimes when you look at the world and then you look at what we're doing, you can look at it and go, you know, I think, I think we might be a defender of a lost cause as well. So why do we keep fighting? Well, that's a great question. It's exhausting and it's not profitable education at any rate. Mm -hmm. Um, So that can't be it. But when you're called to something, you can't think of doing anything else. And that's what vocation is all about. When God stations you somewhere, you're supposed to stand and fight. Mm Mm-hmm. And not just in the abstract either. We do what we do because God has called us to do it. And he's given us grace to do it. And frankly, he chastens us if we don't do it with our whole heart Mm -hmm. because he's a good father. We're teaching young people to fight a battle that in this world they will lose they won't win. And yet we're still equipping them to fight the battle. <laughs> and they'll and they'll lose, they'll lose because this world isn't our home. It is a losing battle. Yeah. And yeah. the question is has the battle been entirely lost? Nobody knows yet. Right. But you're the one that just told you started this episode by telling me of the the horror of driving down that road and seeing all the mayhem and destruction and the perversion. It's sad. I mean, I wanted to cry when you were saying that. Honestly. But uh we're preparing our students to carry on in that same vein and it sounds sad sack It sounds defeatist, but it's real. And we don't have rose-colored glasses on. I think a while ago you said something about Weaver refuses to allow us to look at the world through those rose-colored glasses. You have to have your eyes wide Mm -hmm. open. Just to be a Christian, Jesus did the same thing, right? Oh, absolutely. He said, you will have trouble. We're we're preparing our scholars for persecution. We're preparing them to be reviled because God doesn't, I mean, in Christ, we have won the victory. So I, I don't want to gloss over that. And, and Christ certainly has defeated death and defeated de- the devil. And so we know that our victory has already been won. And that's the beautiful thing, right? That Yes. Even though we are fighting a losing battle here, the victory is won. And I think that's why Lutherans sing a mighty fortress with such gusto, you yeah. know, <laughs> because because it does, you know, it it is that battle metaphor that and take they our life, goods, fame, child and wife, though these that's all be so gone, uplifting. our victory has been won. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, and and you think about how just living in, you talk about the both ends, you know, and you talk about how we live in the tension of these things. 
all the time. And we do. We live in this tension of defeat and victory. That We live that simultaneously. And so we're preparing our scholars to, not just in the future, but right now, to live in that tension and not be Lord willing, and we pray fervently for this, to not be overcome as they battle here. Because it is a war. I have overcome the world. Yes. Yes. It's important when you're fighting battles, and we teach our children this, to take some R&R occasionally, that you're not only looking for a place where you can make a stand, but you need a place where you can go and be refreshed and recharge. And that place is to the altar, the means of grace, to the sanctuary. Also, we've been discussing that hideous strength, and St. Anne's on the Hill has come up as a sanctuary that was the place where the main character, Ransom, was gathering through the direction of God, a company to himself to do battle with the people who were raging and twisting everything, bending society and wreaking havoc. And they actually engineered a disturbance too, by the way, to use for their own purposes so that their institutional police could be granted policing powers, which would build up their ability in the region they were trying to take over to continue exercising essentially martial law and jailing whomever they wished on trumped up charges. So anyway, the opposite of the center of that institute called the NICE, ironically, C.S. Lewis identified as St. Anne's on the Hill And it's really instructive to contemplate, and we are right now on our discussion forum, we've been contemplating what is the nature of that place and what goes on there and the people that are assembled there and their relationship. So it's a community that's going to do battle with these highly organized power brokers who have political and police backing. And these people are misfits. They are odd. They're, they're a motley crew. And they're led by a guy who talks to the Eldilla, who are angels, basically. And he's traveled, he claims to have traveled to Venus and Mars and on and on. It's a very odd group. And they're all believers. And there's no, you know, that's one of the fundamental requirements of joining that company is you have to be a believer because if you're not, you'll likely end up in trouble when the battle begins because it's Mm -hmm. all a spiritual battle. So there's a lot to be learned about the nature of that place where you both take a stand and go for times of refreshing. So we're teaching our students to do battle, and that will be exhausting for them. And you wouldn't want to wish it on anybody. On the other hand, we're teaching them where their source of strength is to be found. Jocelyn, if I may, I have one final quotation from Richard Weaver that I think sums it up so well. I'd like to read that if you don't mind. Excellent. 
Remember I recommended page 206 yes. of Languages Sermonic? Yes. The fact that Aristotle devotes a large proportion of his rhetoric to how men feel about different situations and actions is an evidence of how prominently these considerations bulked even in the eyes of a master theorist. Yet there is one further fact more decisive than any of these to prove that rhetoric is addressed to man in his humanity. Every speech which is designed to move is directed to a special audience in its unique situation. Here is but a way of pointing out that rhetoric is intended for historical man or for man as conditioned by history. It is part of the conditio humana that we live at particular times and in particular places. These are productive of special or unique urgencies which the speaker has got to recognize and to estimate. Hence, just as man from the point of view of rhetoric is not purely a thinking machine or a mere seat of rationality, so he is not a creature abstracted from time and place. If science deals with the abstract and the universal, Rhetoric is near the other end, dealing in significant part with the particular and the concrete. It would be the height of wishful thinking to say that this ought not be so. As long as man is born into history, he will be feeling and responding to historical pressures. All of these reasons combine to show why rhetoric should be considered the most humanistic of the humanities. It is directed to that part of our being which is not merely rational, for it supplements the rational approach. And it is directed to individual men in their individual situations, so that by the very definitions of the terms here involved, it takes into account what science deliberately, to satisfy its own purposes, leaves out. There is consequently no need for wonder that in an age that has been influenced to distrust and disregard what is characteristically human, rhetoric should be a prime target of attack. Dr. Tallman, this has been such a joy to have you guide us on our journey through the writings of Richard M. Weaver. And we know there are so many more essays that we could discuss. But for our time drawing to a close, thank you so much for your time and giving us a taste, because really it's only been a taste, of Richard M. Weaver. Well, thank you so much. Uh, It's my pleasure, and I've enjoyed every minute of it, and I'd like to close with prayer. Heavenly Father, There's so much truth in what Richard Weaver writes. And because he had the habit of thinking about the root of things, there's a lot of abiding truth there, truth that is consistent with your word. And since you are the author of all abiding wisdom, Lord, we pray that you give us grace to appropriate that wisdom and to utilize it in faithful humble, and diligent service to our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website, 
at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.